And I found out real early on, you're, you don't get this job, you're entrusted with this job. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. Welcome to part one of a multi-part series featuring the association's longtime CEO, Mike Bros. What we're going to be doing today is Mike is looking back on the history of the Mental Health Association dating back to 1955. And this is obviously a very special podcast series for me since Mike, who I consider a friend, announced his retirement in late 2019. He and I have talked about recording this oral history of the organization. Now that his actual retirement nears and his successor, Terry White, gets ready to launch the association into a new era, what you'll hear are Mike's stories of how the association grew into a statewide advocacy organization and direct service provider. And specifically in this episode, Mike will begin by discussing how tragedies in his own life led him to become a social worker. Then he'll talk about the association's origin story. That includes him starting with the association as a volunteer with our suicide prevention hotline. Following that, Mike will talk about the father of our housing program, Bill Packard. Because of innovators and visionaries like Bill, the association's housing programs in Tulsa and Oklahoma City provide access to safe, decent, and affordable housing for individuals who have experienced mental illness, homelessness, substance use, and justice involvement. And finally, Mike explains the vital role of our annual gala carnival in supporting that housing and all of our services that you can actually learn more about at mhaok.org. Okay, before we get to this interview with Mike, I want to share the best summation of Mike Bros I've ever read. And it was actually written by his dear friend, Gail Richards of the Maxine and Jack Zero Family Foundation. It goes like this. There are several Mikes I could tell you about. Mike the mentor, Mike the educator, Mike the convener, Mike the collaborator, Mike the visionary. And I could describe countless ways in which he is like no other in each of those categories. In 27 years of service to the Mental Health Association, Mike has accomplished much more than a lifetime of achievement. And I couldn't agree more with Gail. If you'd like to join Gail and I in celebrating Mike's 27 years with the association and support our ongoing statewide mission, donate today at our special landing page that celebrates Mike. It's mhaok.org forward slash Mike Bros. All right, so thank you in advance for your generosity. Now let's get this history lesson started. The Mental Health Download starts now. Okay, so to set up this first section of the interview, I asked Mike to talk about what led him to become a social worker. This is a story I know well, but I wanted you to hear it because it says so much about him. Okay, let's hear it. You know, and, and something I don't talk about that much is, well, how did I get into mental health? What's my story? And of course, my story is, you know, I grew up in a home, you know, my mother was was an alcoholic and my dad, he was a veteran of World War II. I was in the Navy and out on he was on a on a destroyer out in the Pacific somewhere and came back. And like many World War II veterans, he was a heavy tobacco user and he had heart disease and, and died when I was in fourth grade. And that was a huge traumatic event for my life. And then my mother, who was a wonderful woman, who very, very smart, she battled addiction and all of her adult life. When she was sober, she was an amazing, amazing person and woman who I dearly love. And then when she was, you know, like many, many people who struggle with alcoholism, 
addiction to alcohol. When she was intoxicated, she was not that fun to be around and very unpleasant, actually, at times. And so there was some rough years in growing up around that, in that kind of that Jekyll and Hyde that we would now, a lot of times we get described as that Jekyll and Hyde sort of uh, phenomena in people who have addiction sub- with, uh, issues with substances. You know, so that those were very big events. And of course, my mom died when I was a senior in high school. And so when I was a senior in high school, I was on my own. I inherited a little small, a relatively small amount of money that I eventually used to help me pay my way through college and, and even lasted into my uh, one year, one of the years of my two years of graduate school. And so I used that money pretty, pretty wisely, I think, in hindsight for a young guy that could have gone out and bought a nice fancy car and spent it, blow it all in one deal. I didn't do that. I don't know why. Those were values that were instilled in me by my parents. But but that was really, and so after my mom died, I went into a deep, deep depression. I was suicidal. Uh, I had many, many days. I had to make a decision whether I was going to try to hurt myself or kill myself. I sought therapy. I um, worked with a psychologist at the time. And, you know, it was a rough, rough time. I had to do a lot of self-work, a lot of, you know, really things that people have to do. Just because you go to a mental health professional, that isn't all of it. That's a piece of it. And there's other pieces to it. And started running, started living a little more adult life. I really had got really involved in my spiritual life with a local church in my hometown. Eventually ended up, that's kind of led me to being coming to Oral Roberts University. And so, you know, those were, you know, there was two years there where every day was a major, major struggle. But through that, Suddenly, and it's interesting how this happens in life, when you struggle with an issue and you have to do lots of work on around that particular issue, whatever it may be, it could be uh, addiction, it could be mental illness, it could be whatever it is. It's so interesting that as you work along is that somehow providence, God, whatever you want to attribute it to, that suddenly you find yourself helping others who somehow find their way to you with very similar issues and that you're further along than they are in your recovery and you're able to then help them in more of a peer-to-peer way. And I, through the years, I've had that happen. I, it's countless, countless times. And that then, you know, that my own personal emotional growth and uh, recovery, dealing with grief, the loss of my mom and my dad really led me into, you know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Like lots of young people, when I came across social work and began to read about it a little bit, I said that, that, that sounds like something I could get interested in. And then when I actually got into the courses at Oral Roberts University and, you know, it was in Dave Sherwood, Landy Endicott's classes in those days in the 70s. Social work totally resonated with me. It was just like, I'm home. This is where I need to be. So, so that's kind of, you know, that, just that personal start part of my story, very, very personal, that really is all building towards coming to the Mental Health Association. All right. So in this next section, Mike talks about the origins of the association and just a bit of background. It was created by a group of volunteers who charted our organization back in 1955. And as I understand it, they really formed so they could reach out and offer hope to people living in just truly inhumane conditions in mental health asylums. They did little things that meant a lot, like celebrating their birthdays. You know, from there, the association grew to offer free support groups, a suicide prevention hotline, which you'll hear Mike talk about, and really became a force in mental health advocacy. So I'll let Mike tell the rest of the story. 
Yeah, Matt. Of course, there's there's a lot of things that I don't know about. As you mentioned, I came on the scene in 1993. You know, the the original charter was signed on December 1st, 1955. And of course, I was born in 1954. So I was uh, pretty small when the organization actually founded by a group of volunteers. And mental health associations had begun to spring up all around the country. And usually they were a combination of people who were family members affected by a loved one with a mental illness and also who have mental health professionals working together. And and there was a real recognition that stigma was really a huge problem, and which includes discrimination and prejudice towards people affected with a mental illness. And of course, we all know that's, we'll talk more about that, but that still is a battle to this very day. But really the originators and the the volunteers, if you go back uh, long enough to, it was Clifford Beers. And of course, a mind that found itself around the turn of the 1900 of that part of the century and was an individual. And I would recommend any of the listeners to his book, A Mind That Found Itself. It's an incredible autobiography. And really that's where the movement started about him writing about his experiences being hospitalized. And in those days, they used to say institutionalized in both public and private settings. And then him having uh, experiencing a really a spontaneous remission of symptoms and he was released and then he dedicated the rest of his life. And there's a lot more of the history I could go into, but but to suffice to say, the people who formed the Mental Health Association, by the way, then it was referred to as the Mental Health Association in Tulsa, Inc., which is still our legal name. But then that was what it was around. It was very local. Lots of the you know people who were volunteers in the community got it started, and you know I don't know all the directors and previous to me, but I want to make sure I mention some of them. Dave Bernstein, one of them, of course, and then Carolyn McQueen, then Judy Lever. I know those three who preceded me, but I started out mad as a volunteer. I was a social work major at Oral Roberts University, and my partner and I, who was another ORU student, we were assigned to Hotline, which Hotline eventually left Mental Health Association, went over to Community Service Council, and became Helpline, and then Helpline, then eventually NOAA S211. So believe me, back in those days, and this was 1976, when my partner, Bill, and I went over to the Mental Health Association, which by the way, their offices at the time were located over near 11th and Utica in a little second story office. Our job was to, they had these old you know dial phones, there were two, two lines that came in and people would call the quote unquote, the hotline, which is really came out of a lot of out of the 60s and late 60s, early 70s. You had a lot of runaways. You had, there was, of course, suicide prevention was a big part of that. There's a recognition of the frequency of people dying by suicide and people, uh, young people running away, people, also people who were shut-ins, people who were lonely, they needed somebody to talk to. So my partner, Bill, and I, who now is a pastor uh, of a a Methodist pastor back in New Jersey, he and I would go and ride our car over there for our little four-hour shift from four in the afternoon to eight at night. And it was a, a amazing thing for us as, you know, little college students, so short majors, didn't know anything, to be fielding these calls. There were all types of calls. And, and you know, I don't want to belabor it, but my partner and I actually had this opportunity. And without going into the whole story, actually, we actually were credited with saving a life of an individual. Three weeks later, when we came in for our shift, he was a known, known caller at that time, and he wanted to talk to us and thanked us for saving his life. And so you can imagine being a 20. 20- 
four-year-old college student, this was an profound experience and one that I would say I carry with me to this day, because when you think about all the things that we're still doing with Mental Health Association in suicide prevention, it really all goes back to the old hotline, which eventually became helpline, and then now, of course, 211. So looks nothing like it is, but I think that's a really significant part of our history. So then I went off to finish my degree and then went off to graduate school at University of Kansas in the School of Social Welfare there, came back in 1980 and then began my social work practice and then did a lot of different things. I worked in community mental health, working with a population that we serve now, the old Eastern State Hospital that no longer exists in that entity in Vanita, and then worked with Children's Medical Center, again, no longer exists, worked with the Lloyd Rader Children's Center in Juvenile Justice. That facility does no longer exist. There's a theme here, Matt, and then worked at a City of Faith and was the director of social services there. That entity no longer exists. And then worked for, I was the, the uh, director of family therapy at St. John Medical Center for five and a half years. And of course, that, that program no longer exists either. There's a theme here, Matt. Hopefully this thing uh, stops and, and discontinues and then worked uh, in Jero Psych for a period of time. That program no longer exists. Uh, if you're catching my drift, I hope people are finding this a little humorous uh, because I, I can laugh at it. But it's interesting that how the market changes and funding changes and emphasis changes. But all that time that all prepared me for in 1993, on May 3rd, my son's birthday, I was hired by the board of directors at that time to be the new executive director was the term in those days. And I started on May 3rd. 1993, and me and the other four employees that worked for us. And I really want to just do credit. I won't mention them by name because I'll forget somebody's name. But other than I did want to mention Donna Montgomery, who she was the development director at the time. And just to tell you a little bit where how much I knew, I've always told the story. I didn't even know what a development director was. I didn't even know what that was. I'd been a clinician raising money. Now, when I learned that person was the person who helped me raise money, I thought, oh, okay, I got that. That's, I'm glad to know that person's around there. And Donna Montgomery, I really give her, she's passed away, and I really want to give her a lot of credit for teaching me about the rules of the road and uh, proper ways to go about raising money, the use of restricted monies, and how important it is to always, you know, always, always, above all, you don't spend money for other reasons if it's been restricted by the donor. That's their prerogative, and you always stick to that. The, the staff at that time, I want to also just honor them and you know the things they taught me a lot coming out of the clinical setting. I learned that I used a lot of really stigmatizing language that I didn't question. And now they helped me really be a lot more aware. I began to really, in the first year, begin to grasp that there was a real difference between being a mental health clinician, mental health provider, and a mental health advocate. And that advocacy... I, you know, I read stuff had been in my social work classes about advocacy. I, to be completely honest, Matt, I actually found it a little bit boring at the time. I was into cool clinical interventions and stuff like that, which there's nothing wrong with that. It took me a while to really begin to, over time, really experience the meaning of what it means to be a mental health advocate. 
And uh, so that was really uh, a real eye opener because I really thought, felt like I, there was a whole lot that I already knew. I'd been practicing through for quite a few years when I came to the Mental Health Association, family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy. I stayed active in my community, though, and that's how I knew a lot about the Mental Health Association. I mentioned the other volunteer experience with the old hotline, but, but also I volunteered a little bit with Mental Health Association with their education committee knew about them and I uh, didn't know a lot about them. I was still out there practicing. And so, but I didn't know the, that I did know enough to know they played a very important role in the community. It was a really great honor when I was selected as uh, in follow Judy Lever. And by the way, Judy, uh, what happened to Judy? Judy was there six years and she left to be moved to work as vice president of affiliate relations for the National Mental Health Association in Washington, D.C., but there were so many incredible people involved in those days. And Tim Roberts, Monty Moeller, I, I would be remiss not to mention their names. And, and then, of course, uh, met Judy Alexander. We always talk about Judy and I walked in on the same day. She was on the board. I was a newly hired ED. We didn't know each other. And we're very close friends and have very fond of each other to this very day. Again, Tim Robert helped hire me. Tim helped hire my successor, Terry White was involved on the search committee there. You know, and uh, I want to mention a, ma- a shout out to Marion Matthews, who was very, one of my former mentors at St. John, who was a real influential in helping me obtain this position. And I found out real early on, you're, you don't get this job, you're entrusted with this job. And that was a really, it took me a, a while. I don't know exactly, you know, in the first couple of years, I began to begin, I know I began to think that way and began to I always tell the story, which is not an exaggeration. Probably in the first two months that I worked for the Mental Health Association, I'm sure I was introduced to well over 100 people. And it really began to discover the long, stretching tentacles of the Mental Health Association in Tulsa at that time. And the different connections out there with family members, with individuals affected you know, began to discover our galo at that time, which was called the masquerade. I just was opened up to a whole world, even though we were a very, very small staff wise, there was only five of us. When I came along, of course, we were at 1870 South Boulder. Many of the listeners uh, have been around for a long time will remember the offices over at 15th and Denver. And then before that at 51st and Harvard. And then before that was where I mentioned earlier down there near 11th and Utica. So, you know, these were, you know, this history here of Mental Health Association in Tulsa, still, I'll use that term at this point, it already had deep roots into the community, even though it was small. And somewhere in there, like very early on, of course, uh, I would be remiss to say how we became a member agency of the Tulsa United Way who supported us, even though when I came, about 50 to 55 percent of our total budget was from the Tulsa United Way. That's way too high. I think now it's maybe like in the two or three percent range, which is where the United Way would like us to be and should be. But we were at that time totally, almost totally dependent on the survival of Tulsa United Way and the in the donors that we had. And early on, again, I would be remiss not to mention the Zero family. And of course, the Zero family, which I get emotional even thinking about it, you know, early on, Judy Lever told me when I, I'd called her and I knew Judy and called her and said, hey, I got your old job. Yeah, I heard that. Congratulations. You know, of course, I remember one of the questions I asked Judy was, well, how long were you in the position, Judy? And she said, well, I, I was there six years. And I thought, oh my gosh, six years. I can't believe that. 
And uh, how did you do that? That's a long time, you know. So I kind of laugh about that now. Judy said, "Hey, you want to you want to you know get you know meet the Zero family. You can't ask for more important and, and valued and passionate volunteers and supporters of the organization who get it. Their family members. It's they have a family member who's been affected, and they're the the greatest advocates in the world. And I knew of them, but I didn't really know them at all. And and I just took my time. And then I remember I went to actually a NAMI." weekend event that occurred. They had a little conference and they asked me to speak briefly and I got up. And then after that, this woman came over to me and introduced herself and it was Gail Richards. And Gail introduced me and said, introduced her. I didn't know who she was exactly. She seemed very nice, very warm, very engaging. And she wanted to introduce me. She said, I'd like you to meet my parents. And she took me, walked me over and introduced me to Maxine and Jack Zero. And it kind of went from there in terms of our incredible relationship with the Zero family, who are some of the most iconic, revered families in this community. And of course, Maxine and Jack, and I can honestly say, of course, you know, Maxine, she's... uh, I think she's 95, but she is still going strong. And then, of course, New Jack, who's passed on. And what an incredible, just to say that I not only knew them, I actually got to work with them. And our first capital campaign that I participated in, you know, I worked with Maxine and Jack. They were our chairs. And that was a little, at that time, you know, or my development director, Donna, I'd mentioned earlier, said, you know, we need to have a capital campaign. And I said, what's a capital campaign? And she told me, and I said, well, how much are we thinking about raising? And I think she said like 500000 And I said, well, that's a great idea. How in the world are we ever going to do that? You know? And so anyway, we got some consultation and we really tried to, you know, start embark on a, on a way to be able to, you know, raise money and figure out how to do that so we could pay off our building there at 1870 South Boulder and then do some renovations that were badly needed and then pay off some other debt, a little bit of debt we had and kind of get some stability. And so we were able to do that. I'll talk more about that on a future, the next podcast in terms of our consultation there and how we did that and more about the capital campaigns subsequent that we've had since, since I came. So, you know, that was a, those were really looking back on that. I mean, you know, I'll never forget. We, you know, I came in 93, they had bought the building and, and I, I want to apologize to listeners and family members because I'm going to leave out names and people are going to hear this and go, well, they didn't mention, I apologize. I don't mean to not, you know, Suzanne and Bill Warren uh, Jr., I would be remiss not to mention Bill and Suzanne and their family's contribution to the the Mental Health Association. And, you know, Rose and Sheldon Miller, early, early, you know, Rose, Rose and Sheldon, Sheldon on the board, incredible supporters, really believed in what we were doing when we were very, very small. And, you know, who's this guy? They didn't know who I was. I didn't know them. But we all, we all embarked on that journey together to grow the organization. I want to also mention, you know, again, those early years where there was many, many joys and successes. And, you know, I remember one of the first things I discovered was I got feedback that people that were affected by mental illness did not feel welcome in the offices of the Mental Health Association in Tulsa. And I really was troubled by that. I felt like that, again, when you talk about advocacy, I was really shocked to hear that. And we began to open up there at the old Boulder office and we really opened things up and people with mental illness who lived in the neighborhood and stuff who many times were isolated in their homes, they began to come into the office. And 
They formulated uh, an organization they created. They called it the Independence Council, and I'm sure some of the listeners remember that. And that was a really a, a, a consumer. In those days, we used the term consumer. We don't use that so much anymore. But in those days, we used that term consumer, consumer-driven organization. And it was very ad hoc, but people really embraced it. And they, they had a lot of fun. They published a little newsletter. They, you know, they reached out to people. You know, it, it was really, really a great organization. And I, I want to mention and throw a name out there, Randy, a guy named Randy Cole, who again has passed on. And Randy was uh, one of the very first, you know, consumer advocates that I met there. And he was just very passionate. I mean, worked as a volunteer day and night. I mean, he was there more than I was. And he was an amazing guy and eventually moved to Amarella. And then while he was living out in Amarella, he got sick and passed on. But And then the early staff, and again, I mentioned it earlier a little bit about how they began to be, they were very patient with me in those days. And they probably were more patient than they should have been, but trying to help me make that transition from mental health provider clinician to mental health advocate. And doesn't mean that clinical work and Treatment doesn't go with on that setting, but it's a different mindset to be a mental health advocate. And, you know, it's again, it's as, as I said earlier, it's about giving that individual a voice and being that voice sometimes when they can't express their voice to be that voice for them, both within a family, in their neighborhood, in their school, in their workplace, in their community, in their state. And then again, ultimately, the, the, the highest form, in my opinion, of advocacy is, is being able to really empower people to advocate for themselves, either individually or in their own groups as a person affected or a family member, whatever that may be. And of course, uh, a big shout out to NAMI. Uh, NAMI Tulsa, NAMI Oklahoma have been uh, unbelievable at particularly giving a voice to family members that were and their loved ones who were traumatized, I'm sad to say, by the mental health care, care system, brutally traumatized at different times. And I'm sad to say that that still goes on, although I do think it is much better. I think we've made progress there, but sometimes it definitely still occurs. I almost forgot. I want to mention, I came in 93. In 94, uh, as I remember, it was a July 14th. I could be mistaken about that, 1994. We had a huge microburst storm down in the, the area at 21st in Boulder, where our offices were at that time in 1870, was right at the center of that microburst. And the building was flooded. The basement had 15 feet of water in the basement. The first floor was flooded. All of our systems were shut down. We lost our phone system, our elevator systems, our all of our electrical systems. And we basically were shut down for three weeks while we worked tirelessly night and day to try to get the, the doors back open. And it was an incredible task. We did keep working because we sent everybody home, kind of like COVID-19. We had to send everybody home to work from home. But but I want to do a shout out to Jason Packard, who at that time was our bookkeeper, later our accountant, who gave his his heart and soul down there to help working with me and other volunteers to get the old Boulder office back open at this devastating flood. And uh, I will never forget that. And of course, it used to be a joke around, don't get start, don't get Mike started about the flood. Don't bring it up. And they, they don't do that anymore. Most of them don't even know it exists. It happened. But back in the day, as they say, that was a big deal. So I would say we grew out of that flood, that we, we, we coalesced. We, it, made, it reminded us how important our mission is, how important our work is. 
kind of just a little bit of, of uh, additional reflection on those early days. My first day there, when I was introduced to the staff, you know, there was a guy there that I was introduced to, an older gentleman named Bill Packer. And I, you know, I didn't know who Bill was. And he introduced himself and he, he said, I'd like to set up a time to meet with you and tell you kind of what we're doing here. And I'm like, sure. And about two, about third day that I was there, he and I met for about an hour and he sat down and, and Bill Packard, and this is all pre-computer days. So their computers were around, but we don't, use, we didn't use them then in terms of graphics and the way we use them now. We actually use drawings and charts written out by hand. And, you know, it looked real different in those days, and which we did just fine, by the way. And anyway, I met this guy. He sat down with me, this guy, and he showed me this drawing of what was called How- Tulsa's Housing and Care Plan and explained to me that he was not a social worker, that he was a city planner and by trade. And the Mental Health Association board had hired him as a con- he was a contractor, Bill Packard Associates, to develop a housing and care plan and also to get a housing program down on the ground. The board at that time, again, they were talking about a late 80s, early 90s. They had really were really very progressive in their thinking and understanding of the role that untreated mental illness plays in contributing to our homeless issues and understood that institutions like older, large school, like Eastern State Hospital, for example, those types of Fort Supply in Oklahoma, those types of large institutions were being downsized and gradually moving towards being closed or much, much smaller operations. And Griffin Memorial is was that role in Norman, which is now very, very uh, relatively small compared to in those days when all states had those large, large institutions. But they, the board really recognized and they were reading and listening and talking to people nationally and recognizing that the lack of the closing of those institutions and the plans to transfer those funds to community-based services, those a lot of that money was hijacked and never made it that far. And so while we know community-based services work, and there's a massive amount of uh, evidence, scientific evidence to support that, there's never been enough and it's never been properly funded. And so, you know, and, and so Bill began, they began, they hired Bill and they began to really see what was needed was housing. And the story that I've always been told, Matt, was the the board went to the State Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Service, ODMH, SAS, as we would say now, and said, hey, we need some, we need housing. The short answer was, well, we know services, but we don't know anything about housing. And I was told they went to the county and Tulsa County said, well, we know services, but we don't really, we're not in the housing business. Went to the city of Tulsa. We don't really are involved in that kind of thing. And so uh, they really recognize that. And I mean, you got to look back on that board and be amazed that they were so far ahead of their time that they recognized the need to begin to develop nothing more than a a place for a person to live. And I got to tell you, as someone who was a a licensed clinical social worker who had done really some, had the opportunity to do some really amazing clinical work already in my career when I came, housing, and I was told, oh, well, you know, we have a housing program we started. Again, Bill Packard wrote the grant to HUD for it, which got funded. It's still funded by the same grant, by the way. But it was first funded and opened in 1991. I think they wrote the original grant in 1989, opened in 1991. And at Walker Hall, transitional uh, living for adults age 18 and up. And probably it's group home style living, co-ed, six men, six women. 
And so they hired uh, this contractor, Bill Packer, to help him do all this. And then when I came, he was a full-time contractor and with the Mental Health Association uh, as a city planner. And he set me down and showed me Tulsa uh, Housing and Care Plan. And by the way, Matt, as you know, that is one of our, that drawing that Bill Packer drew out by hand is one of our legacy sacred documents that we have. And of course, where is it at now? It's at Legacy Plaza and hangs in the Bill Packard conference room, the William D. Packard conference room at the head. And I always say, if we have a fire, grab that drawing because that's where, and you look at that drawing today that Bill Packard did back and he dated it 1991. He said when he did it, he told me that and signed it, signed his name just right shortly, right before he died. There are big pieces of that plan that are still either on the ground or still in continued development to this day. There are some things that have changed and have been altered in different ways, but the heart and soul of that plan that Bill Packer did, and he was so far, Bill was so far ahead of his time. And, you know, Bill, Bill told me when I, well, the first time he met with me and explained this plan to me on my third day, I'll never forget it. I, I thought, first I thought, this guy is really smart. He definitely was. And the other thing I thought is, wow, that's an incredible plan now, but like, duh, how are you going to do that? I kind of left the meeting kind of chuckling to myself thinking, yeah, we'll do that tomorrow. Right. I love the plan, but I haven't, you know, I don't know how we're going to ever do that. Well, you know, fast forward a number of years and we far, far exceeded even, I think Bill would be the first to admit uh, that we exceeded anything he could have, we could have any of us ever really imagined. But but Bill laid the foundation for that. He had these concepts and he we didn't know we didn't have the term housing first in those days, but that's what it was. It was about the idea you got to find people a place to live. That the old idea that you're homeless, you're you have you have a mental illness, you're not in treatment, you're using substances, get cleaned up, start taking your medication, get sobered up, and then we'll help you find a place to get a place to live and help you find a job. That was failing miserably, and I don't think I need to elaborate to the listeners why. But then the idea is let's get them into housing first. And again, we had never heard of housing first, which is now a completely worldwide accepted evidence-based practice is the most effective way to end homelessness in the, you know, that's ever been identified, get people into housing first, then wrap services around them. And so, which is much, it's easier said than done. But it, we've been doing it for a long time. And we were doing it. We had never heard of the term until we brought Sam Simbaris in to, to uh, one of our early symposiums. And he, our first national symposium, it was a housing symposium, brought Sam in. Didn't know who this guy was, but I remember him describing housing first and then describing what it was. And then we all looked at each other and said, Hey, we're doing that. And we didn't have a name for it, but now we, you know, it has, it has a name and has a, a huge body of uh, research and evidence-based practice around the whole, pra- the use of housing first as a, as a housing model for some of the people who have been the most chronically homeless, been on the streets in the shelter systems for a long, long time is that housing first works. So Bill Packard is somebody who is absolutely in the history of the Mental Health Association is a iconic figure and a, uh, a giant among giants. And, and let, let me just say from a personal standpoint, Bill Packard was one of the finest gentlemen. Not only was he super smart and super talented and an incredible visionary, 
around housing development and particularly low income housing development that was like he used to say safe affordable decent housing development for our most vulnerable lowest income people in our community and he was an expert in that and he knew hud regulations oh i mean you he could quote you scripture and verse i never ran into anybody that i ever came across in the city of tulsa grants management department not one time any people from hud even i never crossed one person that i set in when bill was present that he didn't know more about the hud housing regulations and how in the continuum care how it worked better than bill packard but not only was bill incredibly intelligent incredibly visionary bill was an incredible guy he was one of the most the finest gentlemen i've ever met and he was a, a recovering alcoholic Bill had long since lived in sobriety when I met him, but Bill had one thing you could always count on was, is that he, any time that somebody in the organization or volunteers or staff announced that they were trying to live a clean and sober life, Bill Packard would hear about it and he would find them track them down and he would do the same things about every time take them out for lunch and let them know if I can how can I help you here's my journey and you know and would you like I'd like you to take you to a meeting take you introduce you at the meeting that I attend and Bill would do that every time but Bill was just an amazing guy and Bill and I never had a crossword not one time not not one single time we described ourselves as business partners and Bill and I would plot and plan. And then we would start to, then we would pull in Judy Alexander and then we'd pull in Mac Rosser and we would pull in, you know, Maxine and Jack Zero and Gail Richards and uh, sometimes other people. And we would start to listen. And, and of course, Judy and I, Judy Alexander and I always talk about that, that for at least the first year when Bill would explain to us, how this housing thing would work and this debt-free model, as he called it, we would look. I she was a former real estate agent, knew a lot about real estate. I didn't know anything about it, but we found we compared notes later, and we thought, "What is this guy talking about?" And this guy was talking on some level that we and Judy would say, I, "I'm in the real estate business. Why don't I know this?" And I didn't know that she was thinking that. And I was over there thinking, is is this guy making this up? Is this real? And it, it took about a year for me to finally come to grips with, this guy knows something that the rest of us don't know. It, it was incredible to, to know Bill and to know, and, and then just to be an incredible human being. I mean, there's just nobody enjoyed walking through the door even though he was a contractor, you'd, you'd think he worked for us because he was there every day. He had other clients in the, in the begin in the early days. He actually, when we after the flood and we're on hard times, he actually it was a, he office there at the time and the old Boulder office, and he started paying us rent not because we asked him to. He just knew we needed the money really bad, really bad. And so, uh, but that was the kind of guy Bill was, and Bill was an amazing, amazing gentleman who it was. An, it's been just a. To, the honor of knowing and working with Bill Packard and to see what has come from his vision and his knowledge about the creation of debt-free, affordable housing that had market rate, low-income market rate units, but also units that were dedicated for people who have been living on the streets 
for many years or people who have become homeless and to be able to do that. And that was all came out of the mind of Bill Packard. Listeners now know of Carnival, but they, some know and some are not aware that it originally was called La Masquerade. And of course, you know, La Masquerade, now Carnival, is a, a story in the history of the association as much as anything. And in many, many ways, La Masquerade and now Carnival will now and, and from now on, as long as they have the event, will in some way, shape or form always be associated with Mental Health Association in Tulsa, Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. And, you know, the, again, and, and if, I, you know, if I miss any of this story, I, I apologize. But, but the, the, what's been handed down to me was it was really Monty Moeller, who I mentioned earlier, who was on the board of directors at that time, and also, by the way, uh, a board of director of the um, of National Mental Health Association. And by the way, at that time, there were three local board members that were all on the board of the National Mental Health Association. And uh, Robert Cohen, John Self, who was a county commissioner at that time, and then, of course, Monty Moeller. So that was an interesting sort of, uh, there wasn't any other place that I knew of that had three board members from the same town in the same uh, organization, but we actually did at one time. But, you know, Monty had gone down to New Orleans and attended this thing called a masquerade and came back. And and I guess the association at the time was looking to try to have a, some kind of event to help raise money for the organization. And Monty brought the idea of La Masquerade back. And kind of the way, this is a paraphrase, the kind of way I've heard it told is that the board of directors said he showed them pictures and talked about it and talked about all the money they were able to raise and blah, blah, blah. And and the board sort of said, man, that's a great idea, Monty. How much does it cost to put something like that on? And then after they kind of got themselves up off the floor from the sticker shock and said, well, that's all well and good, Monty. How in the world will we find the money? to be able to do that. And what I've been told, Suzanne Warren at the time was on the board of directors. And Suzanne said, I'll tell you what, I'll help raise money for it. And we'll make sure that we'll bankroll it. If I can use that term, we'll support it to where we're not, the association is not going to lose money. We're going to, you know, we'll cover the, the expenses of the party and then money raised. We'll be able to use that and we'll be able to build off of that. And I remember hearing about the first one. I was over still at St. John Medical Center working over there. And I remember hearing about this thing called the masquerade guy. It was a big deal in the, in the pages of the newspaper and there, the, 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 the well, I remember getting to see one of the invitations that came out. Couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, this is a big deal. And before I came, and, and of course, I still remember my first carnival, a masquerade, excuse me, that I attended. My wife and I, we were in shock. We could not believe it, man. And I always say it's a party party and its reputation as the best party in town is well deserved because it is. And hopefully it always will be. And we were able to do that. But I, we owe a tremendous amount of gratitude to Suzanne Warren and, and Bill uh, and their family. And, and again, you know, the chairs there, my first year, uh, Auburn Howe and Judy Klein, you know, so the, the, we were able to do that. And that money is really important because we need that is it's helped gone to support the housing really early on. We dedicated and said, we want that money to go to housing. And I learned early on that donors might not understand when you talk about public policy, I noticed real quickly, their eyes kind of glaze over. It's not, not all of them, but some of them. And I get that. 
although they could also value public policy and how important it is. But boy, when you talked about to a donor about this money will go to help provide a person a place to live, donors get that. And they like that. They don't. Nobody likes homelessness. And uh, I'm doing something to contribute to any homelessness in my community, or I'm trying to help somebody who has untreated, has mental illness, it's untreated, to help them get into a place to live and get the services and help they need. I'm all in on that. And I think that the history of giving to La Masquerade and now Carnival always goes back to that. That it's it this that supported housing, and in, to this day, like Walker Hall, that provides transitional living for. Trans, uh, transitional age young adults, 18 to 25, many who have been released out of state custody on their 18th birthday do have a diagnosed mental illness who've been homeless, serves those individuals. And that's a that's an expensive program. But we have continued to believe in the role of Walker Hall and its service to the community and to these families and individuals who have a diagnosed mental illness and they've been homeless, where they can come and live and transition, stabilize and transition into permanent supported housing. And uh, particularly those 18 to 25, which I think all the listeners would agree that we need to take care of those individuals and support and help them in every way possible, just like we all, most of us do for our adult children after they turn 18. We don't abandon them or turn them loose or take them down to a shelter and drop them off or give them a 1-800 number. And, and you know, we continue to be there for them as they transition into self-sustaining adults, which sometimes doesn't happen in our culture for a while into their 20s and mid-20s, which is very common. So Carnival, Formerly, La Masquerade funds helps to go to support our housing programs, and and I don't know where we would be without that special event, which is one of the most not just one of the most iconic special events in the state of Oklahoma. It is really and it really can go toe to toe with just about any fundraiser in the United States that I'm aware of. There are many, many that raise way more money than, than what La Masquerade now Carnival does. But but in terms of the the party, the whole spectacle of what it is and what it represents and why people continue to support it after all these years, it, it stands on its own two legs against anything else in the country. And I, I hope that the, the listeners can really appreciate that and what they've been able to do by supporting La Masquerade and now Carnival all these many, many years. You know, so that was that first phase, Matt, of kind of in my own demarcation. And again, I, I apologize again to the listeners. I'm sure people are disappointed they didn't hear their name or you forgot about this or why didn't you mention that? I get that. I'm sorry about that. But but that's kind of, you know, that first phase. And of course, next time, Matt, we'll part two, we'll talk about the, the I call the middle years and particularly the growth of the housing programs of the Mental Health Association and the growth of other programs that we still continue, many of them to this very day. And so we'll pick up there. But Matt, thanks for letting me do this. And, and I hope the people that get to listen to this or choose to listen to it, I hope particularly there'll be people, Matt, that, that could care less. And they're like, hey, that, that was then, this is now. But I know there's still a lot of people out there who remember were a part of those early days that when I came, not the early days of the organization so much, but the early days when I came, that will really, you know, really, really remember that. And I appreciate everybody that's been willing to come on and listen today.